You love technology, you love privacy, and you cherish freedom in the Constitution. This is our culture and way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore that balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number five, recorded on the 24th of February, 2017. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated January 27th, 2017. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong. And welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So, are you feeling overwhelmed yet? Overwhelmed? Oh my god, man. This, this, uh, the, the last month and a half or so has just been so hopping. There's no two ways around it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, it, it's almost like, I don't know, scandal is the word, at least controversy. Contro- controversy, yes. Controversy. There's for- controversy going on. <laughs> well, it's still going on. There's a couple going on at any given hour of the day, uh, new ones bubbling up. Uh, so I'm just suffering like from the- controversy fatigue it's like the controversies are are doing shift work for us <laughs> it's a it's staffed 24 7 with controversies yeah uh actually as a bit of respite to that this is going to sound kind of counterintuitive but um as as a bit of respite to that i'm going to jump right into the news hit it but uh that's because we actually have some good news for once and you know I, I i can't prove this but i wonder if um you know it, it's a matter of uh people are actually starting to realize the uh threats of putting uh surveillance powers into our leaders hands without proper oversight so now <laughs> that that which uh they weren't so so concerned about in previous administrations now maybe they want to take action but we're seeing i just make a quick point on that one and this is something i heard of all sources and this is not a source i quote very often but bill o'reilly said this and essentially what he said was democrats listen to me and hear me the arrangement that you have is fine for you as long as your guy is in power you will no longer want this arrangement when your guy is not the guy in power so i say republicans listen to me and hear me and enter the rest of that there (laughs) you know i i don't think in generally you would consider me a smug person but it's just so hard (laughs) <laughs> not to point out that you know even when quote unquote my guy was in office i knew better and yeah. i was very vocal about it there, there's a lot of truth to that and and i have to agree with you there uh, it's just that um it seems as though 
and and I think this could have happened the other way around as well. This yeah. isn't you know really when it comes down to it. Yes, it is partisan, but it's not partisan. It's partisan in that you when you're when you're not the party in power you go and you look at the situation and you say okay when my guy comes into power we're going to fix all of these things you know and uh fix it for us yeah and then, and that's and there's the problem right there yeah you know it, well i was recently reading that uh george washington was actually uh very skeptical if not fearful of political parties because yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, he suspected that it would just become kind of this tit for tat constantly and of with course. one party, uh, overtaking power from the other back and forth and taking revenge on the other party and, and their followers. And of course. you can't disagree with that in a way. And furthermore, he extrapolated a prediction that this would d divide the north and the south one day yeah and, and indeed if you look at the if you look the, at the electoral maps and see where the red and the blue states are that's not far from the mark i mean yeah. you got some outliers like california which are undeniably north and south but uh, you know california was not in the was not in the picture when uh, when george washington was president yeah but are you talking about current yeah, I mean, you look at California; it's a very blue state, and it is yeah. both north and south. You know, it goes all the way from this to the southern border. You know, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, effectively, they're not a southern state. So that's good news. I referred to. Yes. <laughs> Let's jump right into it. Yes. Uh, the majority of it has to do with stingray use, which is something that we often dig deep into. Yeah, uh, it's something we've always been concerned about. Um, Basically, these are devices that are being sold to law enforcement, and they allow them to spoof cell phone towers and trick phones into connecting to them. And by doing so, this enables them to intercept calls, texts, or cell phones locations. And since they can operate these devices themselves, they've been doing it without any oversight or, or third-party Enabling. I mean, in the in the past of landline days, uh, you know, not only did you have to get a warrant, but um, uh, you had to compel the telephone company to cooperate with you. And with yeah. this, they can roll their own, basically, and that that's pretty scary. Sure. And and if, in the case of the in the case of the landline phones, you, you you had to actually physically get into the cable plant somewhere. Yeah. Um. Granted, it's it's actually not as hard as it sounds, but in in theory, you've got to get the phone company to allow you to do it. Yeah. And uh, with with this, uh, that isn't the case because the airwaves are kind of a free for all in our own way, and uh, it because of the because of the way things are going these days, most everybody's primary phone, if not their only phone, is a mobile. Yeah. So effectively, yes, they've got free roaming, roving wiretaps of anything and everything. Yeah, but uh, these have been popping up like gangbusters. The ACLU estimates uh, more than 68 agencies in 23 different states are said to own these things, and they're 
very mysterious, very secretive. No one outside law enforcement or the, the manufacturers of these things really know how they work, and that's that's disconcerting as well. Um, the FBI actually considers their the technology behind them to be a matter of national security. Uh, I don't know. I would take umbrage with that. I think these are these are devices that need all sorts of transparency. Uh, to the American people, but uh, some uh, some legislators are starting to take action in that direction. And right here, where we are, uh, we're here in the capital of New York State, Albany, um, at the the uh, at the capital here, we're uh, seeing a new bill put forth that's uh, looking to limit the use of these stingray devices by police. Bill A-1895 was sponsored by nearly 20 state assembly members, which I was kind of flabbergasted by not only the number, but also that they're all Democrats, uh, which, you know, I don't know if that lends to my, hey, maybe this wasn't a good idea now that our guy <laughs> wasn't in power idea that maybe privacy, these people are taking note of the privacy issues, but even most interestingly, guess who's on the list of these 20 assembly members? Do tell. Uh, do you remember this name, Matthew Tatone? Now, wait a minute. Now, wasn't he the guy that was trying about a year ago to get past a bill here in New York that uh, was curiously similar to one in California? That yeah, would have the anti-encryption yeah, bill. Yeah, that one. The one that would require a cell phone to be unlockable. Yeah. Uh, so strangely, <laughs> strangely, he now doesn't want law enforcement, uh, to have their way with your cell phone. Now and I'm that... curious to see if I can find out more about what, you know, did he really change his, his, uh, view on this most recently? Now, what makes that interesting to me is, as you say, is a question of whose guy is actually in charge of things. And I think in in his particular case, he's probably the the one exception that uh, that ends up backing up the idea that it's that because for it to be all Democrats behind a particular bill, I don't th find in New York State to be particularly suspicious. I mean, this is a blue state. Yeah, there's no two ways about that. You know, we we have a we have a, de a Democrat for governor. We have a mostly Democrat Assembly and mostly Democrat Senate. But uh, so to have a bill that's backed by all Democrats, yeah, it doesn't really shock me any. Um, but to have this particular name appear on there, yes, I think you have a good point about this being all over who's in charge. Yeah, uh, I, I guess any bill that's sponsored by all Democrats is not a uh, anomaly in New York State. But I just feel that digital privacy issues in general uh, have uh, had both uh, enemies and uh, defenders on both sides of the aisle. Of course. And now we're seeing, uh, apparently... <laughs> Some uh, of the enemies are becoming friends now yeah. that, the, uh, now that the, the, the yeah. hands of the federal government have been changed. Yeah, you have to mm -hmm. put your finger in the air and see... <laughs> which ways the wind is blowing with some of these guys on privacy issues. But um, this bill in New York here would require a warrant for the use of a Stingray device, which I don't know. For me, uh, I feel like it would 
it goes without saying. I didn't think that this would even need legislation because you're tapping a phone, whether you're doing it wirelessly or you're, you're doing it on the, the plain old television. One uh, of the things that does concern me about this, though, is that I, this is a definite step in the right direction, but I'm a little concerned about the fact that this is happening at a legislative level here as opposed to being a uh, constitutional matter. Because it seems to me as though it's it's, it's an assertion of a right. Yeah. You know, um, and it, it's, uh, although at the same time, what would you do? Propose an amendment to the Fourth Amendment? <laughs> or, or, you know, honestly, this could be uh, considered a Tenth Amendment issue to a certain extent um, in terms of state well, states' rights being... Certainly, it is a tenth amendment yeah. issue. Yeah. And actually, some of some of these uh, bills, some if you look at some of the links that uh, we uh, got our research from, uh, the Tenth Amendment Center is one of the people that uh, reported on this. Nice. Yeah. Another thing interesting to me that uh, it's not clear. I want to research a bit more. When I looked up the actual bill on the Legiscan site. Uh, th- there was a statement saying that this relates to the creation of the New York Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the, the NYECPA, which if you've been listening to this show, it may be familiar to you. We had Rashida Richardson on a few episodes ago from the NYCLU who's trying to get that bill passed. Um, uh, there's a statement that says, uh, this bill also relates to the search and seizure of electronic devices and electronic communications. I think that goes without saying. Mm-hmm. But um, how this relates to the ECPA, uh, I, you know, what does that mean, especially that that it's listed on the actual bill itself? Uh, it doesn't elaborate in any way, but um, it does. it's certainly in line with the spirit of what the ECPA was is trying to do, sure uh, you know, there, that that focuses uh, more primarily on on things like uh, um, email, where, where there are third party providers involved, but and requiring warrants before law enforcement could get your your information in that context. Um, there's an exception to this bill for police to have to skip the warrant in the case of emergencies, such as a risk to life or serious injury. Uh, but they would have to obtain a, a court order within three days, which, or they risk the data being destroyed, which I think is reasonable. It, it's it is now it does have a that does carry a small risk with it, and and that is a thing that uh, a risk of something that's come up occasionally with the stingray use in the past, because of the fact that the manufacturer of the stingray did not want. Uh, did not want it generally known. Well, that cat's kind of out of the bag, but did not want it generally known that these devices existed. Um, there was a, a thing that started to occur called parallel construction. So there is a slight risk of parallel construction happening here where basically you use the device to make the discovery that something has happened or something exists, and then you try to seek out evidence uh that you might not have otherwise sought out in order to prove the same thing. Yeah. So you, um, but you I, get wind of it in an unconstitutional yeah. way, and then you Set provide an alibi, it. a constitutional alibi of 
that you actually came across it this other way. Yeah, exactly. But I think uh, I, I have to agree with you. As long as this is not abused, and that's that's gonna always that's always the hard thing to to regulate there. As long as this is not abused, this is a great provision, you know, because obviously the ticking time bomb scenario is is always out there. Yeah. Well, let's cross our fingers. Right now, the bill was passed uh, to the state assembly's codes committee. Uh, and that there it's going to have to receive a, a majority vote before it proceeds uh, onto the onto the big floor. So we have other states that are introducing similar laws that would require warrants to be used and otherwise have oversight over the use of these stingrays uh, in Mississippi, Missouri, New Hampshire, New York, Oregon, California, and Connecticut, and um, out there, we, we had a, a a common sense statement from uh, state rep uh, Robert Sampson, who's a Republican, said a cell phone is an individual's property and law enforcement has no right monitoring activity on these devices unless there's a strong reason to believe the individual is engaging in illegal activity. Yeah, so it sounds like this is a a state representative who who truly understands the the Fourth Amendment. So if these state bills weren't enough, uh, there's actually a federal bill introduced to require warrants for stingray use. Um, good old Senator Ron Wyden, uh, Democrat of Oregon, um, he's been a stalwart protection of privacy rights, digital ones especially, encryption, etc. Um, he introduced the uh, Geolocation Privacy and Surveillance Act, and, you know, as is tradition in Congress, they always come up with a snappy acronym for these bills. Uh, That's cute. That's the this, GPS Act. Okay. The GPS Act. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is even the Department of Justice in their best practices for stingray use, they had a guideline that stated that a warrant should be obtained before these were used. So um, it, it stated but didn't quite implement a warrant requirement. And all this bill is looking to do is to codify that guideline straight from the DOJ into law. And, um, you know, that's something that I think uh, we see in different levels of law enforcement now where uh, sometimes they, they try to be the good guys or, or some elements of law enforcement try to be well uh, intentioned and in terms of what they write into their policy, but their policy is just kind of policy or, or in this case guidelines. And a lot of times we really need stuff like this to be, put into stone by law and it's good to see that they're trying to do this um lastly we had a we had a good write-up about the topic um from this is a publication that's not necessarily i'm not familiar with them but uh they're by name i don't think they're uh, expressly focused on privacy rights or on technology issues it's the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, they wrote up a, a piece about why stingray use is exactly 
why the Fourth Amendment was written. Uh, because, you know, they note that the, the e EFF likened the use of stingrays to soldiers going door to door without any probable cause or reasonable suspicion uh, in the pre-revolutionary war era. Well, if we want to take this uh, from a, a an economic perspective, it's it's actually not that difficult to understand. Uh, what we have in the form of our our cell phones these days, we have our entire lives on them. We've got our contact lists, we've got our calendar, we've got uh, some of the conversations we've had with other people, and most importantly, the cell phone companies want it that way. It's a, it's a mutually beneficial arrangement. It's very convenient for us as the user, and, it's, it's, and it provides a reason for the cell phone company to continue to provide us a service. So it's beneficial to them because we continue to need this service. And the problem is that if we get to a point where we can't trust our cell phones to keep our secrets secret, then we have a we start to get into a situation where we stop as individuals providing that economic benefit to the cell phone providers basically they're out of business but uh, speaking to economic aspects and the cell phone companies it, i've always wondered why aren't the cell phone companies doing anything uh to deal with these uh, stingray devices in terms of just the sheer fact that they're interfering with their network without their permission you know that's a that's a very interesting question and I'm gonna have to say I don't know possibly because they actually need law enforcement like we all do yeah you know, do you think there's any specific vested interest I mean have we stumbled on a something that we want to dig deeper into it in the future. I think so. Because it almost feels like, you know, back in the day, Ma Bell got mad if you even, you know, hooked up a uh, an answering machine sure. without their say-so. And, and now we have these rogue cops running around uh, messing with their cell towers. So, like, I'm pissed as a user of a cell phone. Why isn't... Verizon and AT&T and all these provided, why aren't they pissed with somebody screwing around with their towers? That's true. I mean, it, it, to, to continue the, the analogy from the Ma Bell days, that's, that's not just hooking up a, a rogue answering machine. That's hooking up a rogue switch. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would get arrested if I went on a train and, or in a movie theater and used a cell phone jammer. Sure. And actually, it's interesting about that because uh, when we were talking a moment ago about the the cell phone providers uh, not really getting involved in stingray use, um, I think about a case that took place in Florida maybe a year or two ago where there was a guy that was using a cell phone jammer just as he was driving down the highway during his commute. Yeah. Because he was sick of people who are distracted driving and sure i understand that i'm sick of people like that too but i'm not going to do something like that yeah and interestingly enough it was one of the five cell phone carriers in that area the smallest of the five cell phone carriers in that area 
was the one that picked him out and helped him help the uh, FCC find the guy. Huh. That was Metro PCS that helped them find him. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. But meanwhile, you know, going back to this write-up from uh, the FEE, um, they noted just as, as an example, the San Bernardino Police Department in California used their stingray at least 300 times without a warrant over the course of just one year. And um, th this this one was was chilling to me. The Tallahassee Police Department used the stingray to locate a suspect inside an apartment complex. To quote the article, police drove through the area using the vehicle-based device until they found the apartment complex in which the target phone was located. Then they walked around with the handheld device and stood at every door and every window in the complex until they figured out which apartment the phone was located in. In other words, police were lurking outside people's windows and sending powerful electronic signals into their private homes in order to collect information from within. Yeah. And that really bugs me out because of a, you know, that there a specific precedent that uh I can't name or or other <laughs> off the top of my head. I'll uh maybe next episode or we're uh, our our uh, fellow host and attorney can uh, can uh, remind us of that, but um, th there are prior rulings that make a distinction between super sensory equipment and what we'll call super efficient equipment. Yeah, this is the whole uh, reading license plates versus APRS thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, what it comes down to is if a piece of technology is just doing what a policeman could already normally do naturally with her eyes and ears, uh, then it's not really a Fourth Amendment issue. Um, that would be super efficient. So, like you mentioned, the the, the license plate readers, sure, okay, and we've touched yeah. on this before, but uh, just to remind listeners, basically, uh, you know, a police officer can see a license plate. He can look up the plate and see if there are any any outstanding warrants or, or violations on it so now these license plate readers just scan every plate they see and ch and set off an alarm whenever you know they and they look up in every single one to see and it goes off so um our judicial system has kind of said okay that's that's not a fourth amendment issue because we're just very quickly doing what the police officer could do anyway. But what we're seeing here in Tallahassee, what they did with the Stingray to locate this guy inside a building, that's not, that's super sensory. They oh. could not look through walls with their eyes. So they're, they're using a, a, a piece of technology to intrude into a home without a warrant. Okay, so let me amend my previous idea here. So instead of it being analogous to a uh, an ALPR, this is more like the difference between them walking by and looking inside windows with open curtains versus firing a radar at you. Yeah. Yeah. Which they have, I guess, from what I have heard. So amazingly, we're this far into the news segment and into the show. And we're still on good news. 
<laughs> we, um, we've, I don't think we've moved off the first topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's all been stingrays, but we did, we've had multiple multiple stories on stingrays just in just in the last week or two. Um, but uh, another good note in another area uh, regarding FBI surveillance powers, uh, the Senate um, was moving to try to give the FBI more warrantless spying powers, like. They didn't have enough already. Obviously. Uh, and I guess that's been set back. Um, they they had been attempting to uh, use the annual intelligence policy bill. I'm guessing that's one of the, probably like one of these budget bills that they have to do every year, but then they sneak in all sorts of stuff into them. Um, to, they, they wanted to use this year's bill to allow the FBI to obtain more sensitive digital information from Americans using only a subpoena. And, um, uh, you know, it, I'm not, I'm actually not quite clear on the difference between a warrant and a subpoena. Um, I think, um, I think, generally speaking, the primary difference is who carries it out. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, as as I've said before, but I've I've had s the ability to touch some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, you for a while there, you served papers. Oh yeah, I door to door, I, I, right? I still will if somebody wants it done. Yeah. Uh, but uh, generally, the generally the papers I've served people have been have been subpoenas. Yeah. Um, so that's got to be the difference. I mean, you can't yeah. serve a warrant because they're not no, a law no, enforcement not, officer. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So obviously that's uh, uh, a little less protection than when a police officer has to go to a judge. Sometimes in the middle of the night we always hear these stories, <laughs> right? Yes, of course. You know, to get permission. Um, so a subpoena is a little, got, you know, since... You can do it. It's going to be well, a more loosey goosey than a yeah. than a warrant. That's true. I mean, I can I can write up a subpoena and and bring it to a judge and you know try to convince the judge to sign it. And once it's been signed, it can be served by any civilian, really, as far as I understand. Yeah. Um. So this push has been abandoned after a report from the intelligence community. And to quote a bit of that report from, guess who, our superhero Ron Wyden, <laughs> Democrat of Oregon, quote, this expansion of government surveillance authorities was both far-reaching and intrusive, potentially covering records related to Americans' email exchanges, as well as their login history, IP addresses, and internet browsing history. Now, we've already, if I remember correctly, we've already identified uh, Senator Wyden as a patriot, have we not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I, th I think. He was our first, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, I th I think he's earned it at least twice over just in this episode. Yeah, I'm a, kind of the mind <laughs> to Photoshop a red cape onto him. <laughs> um, let's see. Last up in our, our last bit of good news is uh, less political and less uh, legal... On uh, the software world, uh, the the encrypted email service ProtonMail added Tor support, which uh, what amounts to is they've now added a .onion domain, 
where you can access Proton Mail. Um, uh, those Onion domains are always kind of weird, right? Yeah. Uh, the 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 address is actually uh, Proton I Rock E R X O W dot Onion. But that's almost pretty cohesive compared to some of the onion addresses. <laughs> I know most of them look like uh most of them look like somebody dropped a keyboard down a flight of stairs. Yeah. So so what's the deal with onion addresses in general? Well, if you're going to access something that is uh, a Tor hidden service, which is what these onion addresses refer to, you have to be at that particular point in time on the Tor network. And uh, you could do this in a couple of different ways. You could get a standalone Tor uh, pr proxy that runs on your machine and gives you access to it. Or the more uh, the the less complicated way to do it is to go and get the the uh, the Tor browser, which you can download from EFF. And basically, what it will do for you is it will it will put you on a network that obfuscates. Well, first off, it encrypts all of your traffic that at least on the first leg as it leaves your machine and heads its way out onto the internet that is definitely encrypted now when it actually arrives at a website it may or may not be that's up to the individual website you know whether they use SSL or not but the path that is taken by your uh, by your traffic as you browse using the Tor browser can be completely obfuscated. It will go and it'll bounce from here to there to the other place. And it'll do so on a per-website basis. So I could jump on tour and go to www.duckduckgo.com and appear to DuckDuckGo as if I'm coming from, just for the sake of the argument, some tour exit node in Germany. And then turn around and go hit Google and look like I'm coming out of France. Yeah. And so on because and so they're forth. seeing the IP of the exit of node, the exit and not node, of your correct. computer. Yeah. But um. But but hidden services. Here's the thing about hidden services. Hidden services. You don't go through an exit node. You know. You you basically your traffic stays entirely within the Onion network. So it, it completely obfuscates the entire thing from one end straight through to the other. So would this sum it up, if I'm understanding correctly? It, up until now, if I w wanted to use Tor to anonymously access ProtonMail's site, I would have to connect to Tor, mm -hmm. connect to what we'll call the dark net that is the Tor network, yep. but then go through it and come out the other side back to the regular the, internet and yeah. then get to ProtonMail's site. But now that they've added this, I go, I connect to Tor, but I never even leave that dark net at all to, to access their site because their server is now operating with well inside the Tor network, okay. not it, on just yeah. on the other side of it. Exactly, exactly. Okay. It sets it up so that... Uh, so that the the path that is taken for your data and the data itself is completely obfuscated. Okay. So... And, and let me tell you specifically what thing that protects you against as well. Um, it protects you against a rogue exit node. Yeah. Because the Tor network can be participated in by anybody and everybody who yeah. wants to, if you set up a Tor exit node, 
you could actually theoretically, and I guess this has happened, you could theoretically sample the traffic that comes through your exit node and see what's in it. Yeah. You know, But if it never hits an exit node to reach a particular destination... So basically, a an exit node could be run by, and I'll use this word in a relative sense, of, by bad guys sure. that are not in your best interest. Correct. And they would be privy to your IP. Uh, no, they'd be privy to, they'd be privy to what you were reaching out to. Okay. They, but, they, they may have some issues correlating it with you specifically, but you know, if you were hitting a website, remember I said it a minute ago that in that last leg, the traffic may or may not be encrypted depending on what the website does. Yeah. Well, if the website's not encrypted, then everything about your traffic is plainly visible to whoever's operating the exit node. Okay. This so, resolves that problem. Yeah, because basically you're never going out an exit node. Correct. So what would, um, another little note to this is that they've also added a, an SSL certificate for this Tor version of ProtonMail. Now that's interesting. Yeah, which um, I guess would just be a redundancy or, or a fail-safe or... It, it seems to me as though they're adding a layer of end-to-end -end on top yeah. Of the already very thoroughly encrypted <laughs> tour, <laughs> yeah. tour uh, infrastructure, so I I see no I see no problem with that. Actually, yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah. So, uh, if Proton Mail wasn't already the choice for the paranoid, it totally is now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we got to go downhill. Right. If we must, <laughs> and and I uh, continuing on the news, um, I alluded to earlier, kind of all of this uh, controversy, fatigue, if not scandal. Um, I've only I've almost zoned out of it, and, and as a result, I've kind of decided to aim at just some specific things in terms of the people who are being appointed to the Trump cabinet. Um, I feel like in the last couple of weeks, like there's been a, uh, a new person up for consideration every other day. And each of them had seven different scandals or issues about them. And, uh, well, just it's, within, it's like he's, he's appointing every Fox he can find to guard all of the hen houses. Yeah. <laughs> it does certainly feel like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also true, you know, in terms of privacy issues specifically, um, uh, and, and, and here's, uh, here's another case of, uh, some, uh, Democrats, uh, perhaps being a little hypocritical, um, you know what Jeff Sessions, who was the nominee for uh, attorney general, uh, there was a letter written by uh, Senators Charles Grassley and Diane Feinstein. Oh boy! Um, specifically requesting uh, or specifically expressing their concerns over his track record on privacy and civil liberties issues. Yes. Um, now, I find that particularly interesting because Dianne Feinstein was one of the folks who was pushing so hard to get the San Bernardino uh, 
to cell phone unlocked. Yeah, and not only that, she was was pushing to put permanent yeah limits and and wanted to backdoor encryption on consumer yeah. devices. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> is this is this you a know, flip or a flop? Yeah, I mean, just just in today's this episode's news, we have three or four cases of Democrats who somehow didn't care about privacy when Obama was at the helm, and now they're all worried about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would certainly seem that way, but um, I don't know. I don't trust her as far as I could throw her. I Only people like uh, Ron Wyden, who have uh, been at this for quite some time, uh, uh, get, get my respect in this area. But uh, to quote a bit from this letter... Uh, they said, we are writing to express our concerns about the privacy record of president-elect nominee for attorney general of the United States. And obviously, this letter came even before inauguration sure. time. Uh, Senator Sessions has been leading, been a leading proponent of expanding the government's surveillance of ordinary citizens at the expense of civil rights and civil liberties. He has spent his 20-year career in the Senate arguing for broad, off, and unchecked surveillance powers in intelligence investigations, even though those investigations pose unnecessarily invasive risks to privacy. Senator Sessions has staunchly defended the USA Patriot Act's most controversial and privacy-invasive provisions, calling the act, quote, a restrained piece of legislation. He has advocated for broader surveillance powers than the intelligence community itself has asked for and opposed the USA Freedom Act, which the intelligence community supported. Are you... uh, Somebody calling the kettle black here? I I think to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, would have loved to have heard this strong language uh, back in 2013. Yeah. Um. So, you know, we could we could have a whole show kind of analyzing all of uh, Trump's uh, appointees. Um, uh, I just figured I'd focus on this one in particular, just because. There's there's this little bit of uh, Hippocratic tendency going on here. Mm. Um, uh, I I, it, I guess it's worth uh, chatting briefly about um, Flynn, Michael Flynn, who was uh, uh, had a scandal that actually knocked him out of the running for his position in Trump's cabinet. Um, without going into great detail and and, and in fact uh, it was kind of dizzying for me to keep track (laughs) of but uh, my curiosity about the Flynn case we we had an an instance where um, Flynn's phones were recorded yep and uh, they revealed conversations uh, that showed him I believe during the election when he was still involved in in, in the campaign. Yeah, I believe uh, so. He he was uh having uh discussions that were 
we'll call it less than patriotic uh, I would with actually, Russian uh, with Russian officials or I, I think um, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic I'm actually going to use the word treason yeah. and uh, and, and and I don't use it lightly um, but it seems to me as though there are laws on the books that expressly prohibit uh, civilians from uh, taking up matters with foreign governments yeah. you know and uh let's be clear here michael flynn was a civilian at the time yeah but here's the thing my what i'm wondering um you know the, these phone calls ostensibly uh came from uh national intelligence sources um i don't know if it was the nsa in particular but um, my understanding is that these recordings were made within FISA guidelines. And um, meanwhile, we have uh, Trump and his associates are screaming from the rooftops how, uh, you know, this was an, an illegal leak and uh, an abomination and, you know, uh, trying to offset the story onto uh, how the information was obtained when, A, you know, we've had these agencies uh, obtaining all sorts of information for the last year, many years uh, in, in just this manner under the same amount of oversight. And, uh, but then also worth noting that Trump during the election uh, was very happy to see uh, non-official leaks uh, coming out for about his opponent uh, by way of WikiLeaks and even even praised WikiLeaks for uh, what they were doing. So it's almost like is is what's good for the goose good for the gander? Or... Yeah. Well, it. I, I I probably shouldn't dive too far down that rabbit hole, but I I will say that uh, that it it seems as though the president uh, present administration uh, basically any relationships it establishes tend to be uh, of a temporary nature of a of a very practical nature, you know if uh, pragmatic I guess is the word I was using. brutally pragmatic we'll say yeah brutal pragmatism. Yeah, you know, while you serve while you serve my purpose, I back you. Short term pragma yeah. pragmatism. Yeah. But here's my question. Let's say, you know, um, different sources are kind of painting the picture of where these leaks came from. Did they come from the intelligence community or from the NSA? Um, let's say, regardless of whether that's true or not. Um, do we wonder now will the will, will Trump perhaps uh do his own flip flop and maybe uh squash the NSA a bit or uh any you know the surveillance apparatus in general in a way that we might happen to like but just for the wrong reasons uh definitely a possibility yeah. um you know, it, an interesting thing about that, um, fairly early on in the administration, um, uh, 
I was actually very happy about the fact that uh, the TPP was being squashed. You know, and, and I, I was willing to say, okay, I will back the president when he's doing good things and not when he isn't. But realistically, when it comes down to it, we're criticizing the president for doing exactly that. Yeah. You know? So, I, I don't know. T- read into that what you will. Um, you know, I was I was criticized for 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 that particular perspective, and I think as I'm looking back at it, rightly so. Yeah. So. And if this came from uh, the established intelligence community in Washington, um, what do you make of a a, a scenario where um, established uh, you know, career-long establishment government agencies are uh, surreptitiously kind of kind of pushing back on this president already. And what are the implications of that? You know, it's one thing when the American people, you know, through protesting and voting, going out to town halls. Well, um, on that on that particular front, I see the intelligence community doing uh, doing what may be viewed as the needful on their part. See, the thing that one has to keep in mind here is that fairly early on, uh, President Trump made enemies with a number of sectors that that most prior presidents have realized that you have to work with. Intelligence community is one of those sectors. Media is another of those sectors. So when these various sectors find themselves in a position where their work is being considered unproductive, counterproductive, or adversarial to the administration, um, what do these sectors have to lose anymore? What is the logical thing they're going to do? They're going to work against those who are working against them. If Trump has decided that the intelligence community is his enemy, the intelligence community will respond by acting as his enemy. When Trump has declared that the media is his enemy, the media will respond by acting as his enemy. Why should they do him any favors? But uh, does that pose its own danger you know of course um, it does it it's uh one like i said when it's only it's one thing when the american people rise up and 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 lash out but if you have kind of this uh um kind of kind of centralized agency or bureaucracy rather that uh uh is kind of pushing back whether you like the guy or not, does it kind of um, smack of a soft coup, like uh, you know, in the works to some extent? Or well, I don't know if I would take it as far as saying that it's a, a coup, be it a soft coup, hard coup, or whatever. Um... How about a Roku? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a Robo coup. Uh, I don't know. A uh, Sudoku? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it qualifies necessarily as a as a coup, whether it be a soft coup, a hard coup, or what have you. Um, realistically, how about a coup coup <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
if he had made enemies of the military, then I think we'd have a serious risk of a coup. Yeah. Uh, are there any indications of that? Honestly, that I you've don't seen? Know. I haven't looked that closely at that aspect. Yeah. I mean, as you say, we've been kind of swamped with scandals here, so it's, yeah, it's hard to keep track of, of all of these. Like that. Yeah, I almost need. They always almost need to put out a set of baseball cards <laughs> or playing cards. Yeah, like they did in Iraq. Remember yeah. that? <laughs> that would be handy. Maybe we should make them. Um, so, uh, on another note, more bad news. Uh, here's where I start to, uh, you know, wonder not about coups, but, uh, jackboot thugs, for lack of a better term. Um, we have a number of incidents of, uh, either proposed or, or actual privacy intrusions at the border. Um, the Department of Homeland Security is considering demanding social media passwords from visits uh, or from visitors rather f from the list of countries highlighted by Trump's Muslim ban uh, and I guess you could consider this one of the first examples to come to fruition of, of Trump's notorious extreme vetting promise that he that he made you know he could never outline what that meant but uh, he here's a here's a pretty good example i'd say um and mean but you know that's a proposal but meanwhile the the uh care or the council on american and islamic relations claims this is already going on sure um they filed complaints with uh the customs and border protection uh services uh they claim that muslim american citizens are returning home from abroad and have had demands made for their social media handles and cell phone unlock codes. Hmm. Um, so, while the while the first uh, proposal asks for uh, for passwords to hunt through, you know what you're doing, uh, you know privately on Facebook, Twitter, and and all, all the usual platforms. Uh, in this case. Um, you know, if they get a cell phone unlock code of someone's phone, they can just sit there and uh, log into. You know, they don't even have to log in; just open up Facebook or or the Twitter app, and they can see uh, their history of uh, private posts, just as if you were doing it on your. You know, this might be the the place where uh, where GSM phones end up being the big winner. Um, think about this for a second. If you, if you, and there's, there's two major cell phone technologies out there. And one of the two GSM has got this nifty little ability for you to take your, your account information out of your phone in the form of your SIM card. Okay. Um, so the other technology, CDMA, uh, the LTE phones in that, the 4G phones have a SIM card, but it doesn't contain the phone's entire identity or your account's entire identity, just the the 4G portion of it. But if you are in a, a GSM provider, um, then when you take that card out of your phone, it takes the entire account identity with it. Um, and what you could do, I suppose, in this particular case is, is buy a cheap little Nokia whatever 
you know, get a get an old 3310 or a new 3310 because I hear they're coming back into production again soon, um, and drop your SIM card in that when you travel. When you are on the airplane coming back from the uh, from your trip, you take and you wipe your phone. You get back to to home. Okay, yeah, your your account information is in there. They they know you know maybe what your phone number is and and who your carrier is, but that's about it. You know, then you get back to your house. You take the card out. You put it back into your real phone, which has got all your stuff on it. And off you go. What kind of data are we talking about that we're associating with the Sims? Are we just talking contact lists? No, it's, uh, well, you can put your contacts in there, but you don't have to. You know, a lot of phones will allow you to store the contact list internally or on the SIM card. Um, I mean, certainly that's true of, of every OnePlus phone I've encountered. Um, and uh, But the, the, the thing of it is, primarily what the SIM card serves as is the information that allows your phone to connect to a cell phone network and identifies it for billing purposes. Okay. That's it. Okay. Just It's just the information necessary for billing and administrative purposes. Well, I... Maybe you can poke holes in this, but I think I've got a, a pretty robust plan uh, on the Android platform that uh, I have lined up. If, you know, if you've um, done what what's called uh, unlocking your bootloader and replacing your recovery, I guess the recovery would be analysis an analogous sort of to like a BIOS sure. on your computer. Um, if you go ahead and do that and replace it with something like uh, Twerp, which is TWRP, uh, I think it's like Team Win Recovery Platform, something like that. Um, uh, this lets you make kind of backup images of your phone uh, and the, specifically the different partitions of your phone. And kind of similar to like if you were making a Ghost backup or a uh, Clonezilla backup, something mm -hmm. like that. So... I've got this on my phone, and basically I made a uh, an image when I freshly installed an operating system on my phone. Um, so it's at a it's an image where there were no messages, there were no contacts stored on it yet, etc. Um, that still sits on the phone uh, idle. Um, the idea. Uh, I would have is, you know, before I do any major travel or cross through any borders or other checkpoints that I'm anticipating, uh, what I would do is uh, back up the phone in its current state um, into an encrypted image uh, that wouldn't really be obvious, uh, in, you know, unless you were tinkering with uh, the twerp interface, which you would you, you can't open it just as an app when the phone's function, functioning mm -hmm. normally. You have to do a special reboot just to get into it, just like when you get into the BIOS of your computer. So uh, what I would do is back that up uh, in its current state, then restore the very early kind of empty image of my phone that has very little apps, no contacts, no... Uh, um, okay, messages. But, but but let me ask you this question. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, that's that's a very thorough approach. Yeah. Could Alex do it? Could Alex, our, our, yeah. our chair? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I think we already know the answer Of Restore to that. the Fourth? I, and I think we already know the answer to that because yeah. we've heard him talk about how he is not a very technical person. Yeah. But the process of taking the card out of your real phone and putting it into a temporary phone, yeah. that's something anybody could do. That's true. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever the scenario may be, you know, um, there were even reports that, uh, that one man was, uh, physically abused or roughed up when he refused to hand over his lock phone to these border agents. And, you know, um, uh, now the thing is what what you're suggesting when you when you do this sim card swap would that really prevent them well, from yeah, opening because, up Facebook and then just happening to see what you're writing privately to your buddies well, on Facebook yes, Messenger because if my if if Facebook is not installed on the phone that I hand them because it's been factory reset okay Okay, or, maybe or I maybe missed that part. Or maybe you, it's, uh, that's what I was saying, you do that whilst you're in the air on the way back from wherever you're traveling. I see. You know? Or, even better yet, I mentioned uh, a Nokia 3310, that's not a smartphone. <laughs> you know, that's that's like the the most ubiquitous of the phones that was out there before the before the smartphones started to appear. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, well, there was a, a a really notable incident of this occurring. We had a uh, a NASA scientist who uh, was returning to the comp- country after uh, coming back from South America, I believe, and uh, um, he was forced to unlock his uh, government issued phone at the airport. Uh, his name is uh, Sid uh, Baca Navar, and he works for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, this is his his uh, work issued phone from NASA JPL, and they're demanding to uh, to dig into it on the spot. Uh, it was detained by uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol on January 30th uh, when he was coming back from Chile. But uh, we're talking about somebody who's a natural-born citizen, and not only that, he's enrolled in the Global Entry Program, which I think is similar to the the TSA pre-check program yeah. and this is where you 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 preemptively provide all this information about your background uh anyway for them to keep on file so they should have all the information they need of i mean you know this would be in my mind the the kind of hassle that you're looking to be exempted from when you uh, sign up for something like PreCheck or uh, the Global Entry Program, wouldn't you say? I, I would, and, and I would significantly hope that uh, uh, Mr. Bakanivar is, um, is uh, consulting a lawyer, because I think he's got a case here. Yeah. Well, let's hope it's JPL lawyers on the case, because this was Amen. their phone yeah. and their information, potentially their information. Um, I heard that, uh, you know, JPL's IT folks were not happy <laughs> that somebody was futzing with this phone. I suppose my question would be whether or not that phone had uh, access to classified information. Yeah. And at that point, would those agents at the airport have been uh, 
breaking laws? I it seems like they might. Yeah, and especially like would 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 it confirm that fact knowing that. Um, uh, to quote Bakanavar, he, uh, he said, uh, I was cautiously telling them I wasn't allowed to give it out because I didn't want to see like I was not cooperating, but I told them I'm not really allowed to give out the passcode. I have to protect access. But he insisted they had an authority to search it. Mm. So, I mean, this is somebody that knows that they're supposed to keep what's on this phone to uh to themselves mm -hmm. and uh they strong-armed them mm -hmm. um we uh we had a uh, uh an incident i think it was just today at jfk uh airport where uh, uh border agents uh stopped domestic travelers um at the airport when they were deplaning from a domestic flight and um, uh, they were told to show their ID to border agents who were waiting there right at the the, uh, the exit door of the plane um, you know this is kind of uh, questionable because uh, uh, customs and and border patrol are generally limited in jurisdiction to international arrivals or they traditionally at least sure yeah Okay, and this come. There's a story that that's coming from the Rolling Stone. Um, when Rolling Stone pressed uh, pressed the agency, they cited uh, the CBB uh, search authority, which states, "quote All persons, baggage, and merchandise arriving in the customs territory of the United States from places outside thereof are liable to inspection by a CPB officer." The CPB document adds. CPB has the authority to collect passenger name record information on all travelers entering or leaving the United States. Okay, but, but this is this this looks very clear to me though. Yeah, is, is, these are the key words I would I would. I You're going to point out what I was going to point out. Okay, uh, point it out. Yeah, I, I well, number one, the same thing. Number one, um, uh, places outside uh -huh. of. Yeah. Meaning, uh, inter you know, outside of the country, yeah. and then uh, all travelers leaving, uh, all travelers right. entering or leaving the United States. Right. This was a domestic flight. Right. They were doing doing. Nobody in this plane was doing any either of those. Now I got to tell you personally, you know, JFK is not that far away. That if I were uh, headed home at this point. Uh, in in my travels that I'd be concerned about missing a connecting flight. Yeah. You know, if if I missed a flight from JFK to Albany, all right, so be it. I'll go hop on a train. I probably yeah, you would take a that. train anyway. Yeah. You know? Uh but uh the 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 thing of it is uh unless I was actually trying to catch a connecting flight, if I were encountering this particular scenario, I think I would be very very uh inclined to give them a hard time about it. Yeah. Now here's the funny thing. I think, I think we uh, we exchanged this article earlier today. Uh, mm -hmm. You know when we're we're recording on February 24th here, but and by the time we release the, you know, in the day or two by the time we release this podcast, uh, there'll probably be 17 other scandals mm -hmm. and controversies. <laughs> that, uh, so I hope you forgive us for for not covering those, but. 
Um, but yeah, uh, we read this earlier today, and then I w went back and uh, refreshed the page on Rolling Stone's site, and they had some updates. Uh, um, originally, uh, they stated that a passenger tweeted that they were, quote, not allowed to disembark until they displayed ID and that the flight attendant alerted passengers that you will need to show your papers to agents waiting outside the door. So that's um, very definitive language that. from witnesses, not allowed and you need to show. But now this, the CPB is kind of backpedaling um, and saying that um, uh, the the ID check on the jet bridge was quote consensual assistance from passengers aboard the flight and that CPB did not compel anyone to show ID. That okay, so it, me, it was me, merely merely a uh, a request. Let me give you a, a, a an example of something that happened to me when traveling uh, maybe about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um I had, of course, you know, checked some bags and I had some carry-on luggage. And, of course, you carry on the luggage that's got the stuff in it that you don't want to part with, yeah. you know, uh, including, you know, like a change of clothes in case the, the checked luggage gets lost, which happens. And uh, coming up through the security line at one of the airports, I couldn't remember which one. It doesn't really matter. I was asked to voluntarily submit my luggage, my carry-on luggage, for an explosives check. Okay. All right. I declined. Mm. And they took my bag and started to walk away with it. I'm like, wait, where are you going? Where oh. are you going? Okay. Yes, it was voluntary for me to choose between having it checked for explosives or being checked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's not the definition of voluntary. Yeah. And I don't think this is either. I I really doubt that uh I I really doubt that the choice was given. Yeah. Yeah, I mean if you're uh <laughs> if a if a strong-armed customs officer is blocking the doorway when he kindly asks you for your ID, <laughs> that's that's a little more than uh, a uh, a kind request. Uh, yeah, it's a little more compelling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I did, they they stated that they were uh, doing this to assist in locating an individual that was possibly uh, aboard this flight uh, who had been ordered removed by an immigration judge. Okay. So that adds another wrinkle. Uh, ultimately, they say that it was determined the individual was not on the flight, but it still adds this wrinkle of like, are uh, we, uh, of in the wake of the Muslim ban, are we seeing um, kind of more jackbooted uh, behavior, especially uh, by Border Patrol this does and, sound and, like and immigration authorities, uh, just in this kind of sudden at atmosphere that we've had in the last few weeks now uh, it is it is worth noting that um uh as of i don't remember how many years ago at this point but uh it basically customs and border patrol basically has claimed a 100 mile uh 
distance from the border and the coast oh, yeah. to be yeah, a constitution-free zone. Yeah, it's, yeah the constitution-free zone. If you ever want to spend some, some time uh, watching interesting YouTube videos, you, you, you go look uh, on YouTube for videos of people who are refusing to, to talk to CBP uh who live inside this this 100 mile zone near the Mexican border? Yeah, you know? or near the Canadian border. Or, I've gotten stopped on the on the Northway. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah, and they they wanted to know my citizenship, and they just set up a checkpoint in the middle yeah. of the highway. Um, and you know, I've been ever since I've been kind of screaming from the rooftops about uh, this obviously unconstitutional practice that yeah. that's pretty regular now where uh and um i can't you know i can't quite co uh, uh quote court cases as, as is typical for me but <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a lawyer but uh i i i can recall some reading about uh the precedent that this hundred mile uh this hundred mile border um uh radius comes from um goes back to a case regarding uh border patrol officers i believe pursuing i, I believe in a vehicle pursuing somebody who fled uh into the country from a checkpoint that was on the bona fide border uh and they pursued him uh in a chase i believe uh, and I, I guess later came into question whether they had jurisdiction to pursue him. And part of what came out of this was that, yes, within 100 miles of the border, they could pursue something. But if we go back to that example, we're talking about somebody who who uh, who fled the authorities at the border, you know, made a run for it. Um, to me, there's a far stretch between leave you know heading inland after someone that that did that and then just setting up checkpoints anywhere within sure uh, within the confines you know internal uh territory of the united states within a hundred miles well and yeah so that that would sort of imply that this is more or less standard issue mission creep um but uh the the practical upshot though is it is worth noting the entire of New York City is inside that one hundred mile range. <laughs> you know, so so yes. Well, I think JFK, the entire state of Florida is in a quote unquote constitution free zone. And actually it's it's one of the, the one of the nice things about living in the in the, the capital district of New York is that uh we are not in that hundred mile zone. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, I've always wondered, um, let's say if you were a passenger vehicle that came across one of these checkpoints unexpectedly, uh, uh, what would happen if you exited the vehicle and just proceeded to uh, be on your way by foot? <laughs> I have no idea, but I do know, uh, I do know personally somebody who crossed... Uh, who has crossed the uh, the the U.S. Canadian border? Somebody about our age. Okay. Uh, so this is somebody who would have um, would have been between the ages of eighteen and twenty-one 
while the, the drinking age in Canada was 18 and the drinking age in, in the U.S. was 21, uh, who rode horseback across the border numerous times to go drinking in Canada. Did the Canadian Mounties <laughs> pursue him on horseback? That would be the it only be appropriate response. Suited, suited, wouldn't it? Yeah. So even in, in the wake of this uh, updated information where they're claiming that uh, this was a request made of these air travelers and not a demand, uh, Rolling Stone asked them to c- clarify whether uh, the, it really was truly a request or a legally, demand, uh, legally binding demand by the agents. Um, and... Their response was a little unnerving to me. They said uh, that he couldn't clarify the CPB's legal authority, but, quote, it's always best to co- to cooperate with law enforcement so as to expedite your exiting the airport in a timely manner. Nice schedule you got there. It'd be a shame to see something happen to it. <laughs> And that really leads into what I was saying earlier about, you know, concerns over a connecting flight. You know, if this were to happen to me in Sacramento, I obviously would would be a little bit more cooperative. But if it happened to me here in New York State, no. (laughs) Just no. So, um Continuing uh, the follies of the 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 uh, post-inauguration world, um, we are seeing a lot of uh, increased usage of encryption and anonymous social media uh, amongst um, government agencies, especially science agencies. Mm. And... um, uh, Right out of the gate, we're uh, seeing something, uh, I'm going to call it horrifying. Um, uh, something, I think that's a good word for it. Yeah, uh, where uh, the Trump administration has gagged scientific agencies like the EPA um, from releasing information without it first being vetted by political officials. And I mean, um, I, I I don't think you see that kind of practice anywhere other than dictatorships like North Korea, rather. So what's happened is a lot of these agency employees have gone rogue, uh, is the term that's being bandied about, that uh, they've kind of created alternate anonymous uh, accounts on Twitter and other social media where they start posting or tweeting the uh the bona fide information the the unfiltered information that they normally would be posting on their official accounts uh for the agencies uh and uh, we've seen a number of these pop up uh a lot of times with that uh rogue Prefix like a few examples are on Twitter are of handles are uh, at rogue NASA or at rogue uh, NOAA uh, National mm-hmm. Oceanic and um, 
atmospheric administration. Yeah, the folks that run the weather oh, service. Yeah, um, at Alt EPA or at Alt U.S. National Park Service, and uh, the latter, I think we've seen them kind of uh, running uh, at the mouth uh, anonymously on this account uh, about global warming information and research, which uh, we know a, a lot of uh, the administration uh, does not take kindly or, or even uh, believe in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess this is a way to get around. I mean, it's it's really very sad that they have to resort to things like this, but it is a way to get around the, the need to check in with the Politburo. Yeah, but we're lucky uh, that, one, I never thought I'd live to see the day in America where this kind of scenario is occurring. But I guess the bright side is that it, it is occurring now and not in an earlier era when we have the Internet and kind of these these mediums and avenues uh, for these scientists to do this. I mean, can you imagine if someone took power like this and, and squelched scientists uh, even 30 years ago? Even what, 15. What, what, would their, uh, what would their remedy be? We'd have no idea. What yeah. was really going on? What was being uh, curtailed from uh, our purview? Um, and then, meanwhile, there are reports that scientists—I guess—they're so uh, afraid for uh, their career, I guess, that they're starting to communicate with each other through encrypted apps such as Signal uh, under this. Uh, squelching or censorship um, to the point that uh, some in Congress are actually requesting a review of the uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency's use of encryption communications amongst each other. Uh, you know, this came after uh, Scott Pruitt was named of the uh, the head of the <laughs> EPA. Um, this is somebody who's a climate change denialist uh, and a close ally of the fossil fuel industry. Um, so, you know, say what you will. I, I mean, we are, Restore the Fourth is, is, is fairly nonpartisan, but uh, just the fact that dissent is being squashed is not a partisan stance in my mind. I th think we... Uh, taking uh, taking a stand against this on this show is not break our partisanship because, um, you know, the same scenario in, in the other direction would, would, would be just as abhorrent. Uh, moving on to uh, our good friend Edward Snowden, the, uh, the originator, the one who started, started it all. <laughs> Um, there were reports that uh, Russia was considering returning him to the U.S. Uh, quote as a gift to Trump to kind of uh, bolster uh, favor with the Trump administration. Um, the, the, supposedly, NBC News got a, a, a hold of um, 
uh, a U.S. intelligence official who derived this from sensitive reports on Russian conversations. Um, but the 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 wonderful irony of this, uh, as stated uh, best by Snowden himself on his Twitter account, he said, "Finally." irrefutable evidence that I never cooperated with Russian intel. <laughs> <laughs> no country trades away spies as the rest would fear their next. So if he was a spy, they would uh, be keeping him comfy no matter what, is his point, I guess. Well, see, now I'm thinking that maybe the Snowden is not that great of a gift to Trump as it might initially seem. Now, oh, yeah. personally, I have a. I think maybe I'm I'm projecting a little too much here, but I personally think that Trump will probably view it as a as an opportunity, may even salivate at it. But uh, that's neither here nor there. The problem is, this is not so much a gift as it is a white elephant, because we have to keep in mind that. Once he is brought to the U.S., he's going to have to be tried in a U.S. court, and he's going to be well defended by the ACLU. It's going to be very divisive, and uh, there's a good probability that it's going to cause the country to be more polarized than it already is. And given what, what Trump has walked into in this particular White House, and, and this is actually one of the few... One of the few points where I actually feel some sympathy for the guy is he is now in charge of a wickedly divided country. Well, better him than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One topic that uh, uh, I've been meaning to tackle on this show came up in a, a few different places in the news this week. Uh, it kind of got buried uh, in a lot of cases. Even in a case where a story came to real prominence, everybody kind of forgot about it, uh, about you know what it was really about, and that's uh, civil asset forfeiture. Mm. Uh, the reason I've been meaning to to get around to this uh, uh, since we started the show, um, if you remember, uh, I attended the Hope Conference, which was uh, you know run by the uh, the twenty six hundred. Uh, folks in New York City uh, back this summer and uh, Restore the Fourth uh, had a table there and I was manning the table um, and somebody approached me and brought this up then they said oh you guys uh, you know are here to protect the Fourth Amendment what about civil asset forfeiture and you know I kind of stopped and kind of cocked my head and said yeah what about civil asset forfeiture and if you're not clear on what that means uh, uh what well, what, well let me let me just refresh everybody's memory here mm -hmm. on what the fourth amendment actually says because i think it's it's important to to know these words it's the right of the people to be secure in their persons houses papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but on probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place and to be searched and the persons or things to be seized and what's happening in the case of civil asset forfeiture is that assets are being uh, identified as being uh, something that is associated with a particular crime that may or may not have uh, taken place. And the legal theory, as I understand it, is they arrest the asset. 
Now, what that actually practically means is that they take possession of it uh, in in something that has always, to me, seemed to be a very clear violation of the of the Fourth Amendment, and I've felt that way for for at least twenty five years. Uh, but seems to me to be a very clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. They take away your you you, you walk through an airport with. Uh, I, I heard of one particular case, and this is actually kind of near and dear to to me. And 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 if you are familiar with this one, Fong, that this is probably you'll feel the same way about it. It concerned a DJ. Okay. Now, as you know, DJs do a lot of cash business, and this particular DJ was traveling. And he did a lot of cash business on the spot gigs while he was traveling. And he had a lot of cash on his person as he came back home through the various airports. Mm. And that was seized. Okay. Because there's no reason you could possibly be carrying that much money unless it was a drug Nefarious. Yeah. yeah, nefarious. Yeah. yeah. But they never accused him of a crime. Yeah. So that's what makes it so weird is that you're you're um you're you're basically uh filing cases against property and not the persons formally in possession of them. Right. I mean they took a, took this money away from him but yeah. in a, a legal sense they are filing a, a case against the money. Yeah. Which makes no sense to me. The money whatsoever. cannot defend itself. Yeah, it cannot defend itself. But also, um, you know, when the Constitution talks about uh, the pursuit of, you know, about life, liberty, and property, um, I think the context is clear is that property is only just that when in the context of being owned or possessed by an individual so how could you how could you uh, file anything against an uh, an object or a possession uh, without depriving the liberty of the person who possessed it right well I mean here's the here's the aspect of it that always bothered me yeah Um, is that you don't necessarily have firsthand control of all of your property all the time. Uh, if you own anything that you rent out, and and in the vast majority of the cases, that's going to be, you know, um, real property. You know, an apartment. Maybe, maybe you own a, a house uh, that you rent out, or you you own a house that you've divvied up into apartments that you rent out. Okay, so one of your Tenants, unbeknownst to you, is dealing drugs. Okay, so that tenant uh, has been using your property rightfully because they are paying you rent. And that tenant is responsible for what's going on in there. And that tenant gets busted. Okay. You lose your rental property. This is uh, this is the logical extension. This is where uh, civil asset forfeiture can go. Yeah, but within its originally intended scope, and then you take it and you move it into the, this other scope where where property is getting seized just because 
Nobody carries $10,000 in cash unless they're up to no good. But what was what was the, you know, we, we have these uh, anomalies where, you know, like a couple uh, examples I've heard are like vehicles that are seized from uh, grandmothers or, or parents because their, their children or grandchildren drove drunk with that car. Right. Um, uh, and that's you know, the same scenario as the, as the, the, the apartment. Yeah. It's a piece of property that you own, but is not necessarily in your control when it is used in the commission of a crime. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, there have been cases of people pulled over and, uh, the, the officer smells marijuana or or the like and uh what you know in that commission they they of that pullover they discover cash similar to uh yep. this scenario you, you described and it ends up being forfeited even if the person ends up uh not being guilty of possessing uh possessing a uh controlled substance um uh, the worst case scenario I heard of houses of families yeah. forfeited in cases where the children residing there were involved in serious drug dealing, so they take the house away. Uh, I mean, how can they possibly be doing this? But, you know, these are the anomalies, but it, it, to kind of go back, to, you know, from where we should have started, like what, what were... Uh, what was the uh, the uh, original intention or purpose of uh, such a move? I, I don't even know. You know, I, I really I, don't. I mean, we know enough to say, you know, there was the intention to thwart large-scale drug trafficking and terrorism because... Well, I, I but, suspect if, if any of those things, it was probably pointed more at uh, at drug trafficking than anything else because... Uh, you know, uh, drugs trade does produce a lot of uh, a lot of cash flow, yeah. you know, and that's that's all I can come up with. But but this is kind of a departure for us yeah. because um, we, you, you know, I'd say in this era, ninety to ninety five percent of the privacy issues that that we tackle on this show and in the restore the fourth organization are in the digital realm because we're in this brave new world but um you know uh when i mentioned this uh attendee at the hope conference that kind of that queried me that kind of uh you know brought me to attention that there are still real fourth amendment issues that are brick and mortar like this yep and um you know, with, with that bit of setup, you know, we there are some really notable stories that have happened in the last week or two revolving uh, civil asset forfeiture. Um, number one, Chris Christie, uh, the governor of New Jersey, uh, infamous <laughs> for many reasons, but um, you know, everybody knows Bridgegate and mm -hmm. and. Uh, and all that. Uh, as a quick aside, did you know that he uh, he he pioneered the good old um, let's have a a, a government uh, informant um, uh, you know suggest to uh, a quote unquote suspect uh, that they uh, 
uh, help them obtain a weapon or help them plan a, a terrorism. Uh, I did not. Yeah, he he he. Uh, the good old uh, entrapment, entrapment trick of yeah. like, hey man, uh, do you want to buy this uh, rocket launcher? You know, uh, when the person would have never had that idea in their head whatsoever. Uh, he was uh, he he was the groundbreaker on on those Lovely. kind of cases. But um, back to civil asset forfeiture, uh, New Jersey unanimously. Uh, uh, supported a bill that was put forth that was going to provide transparency uh, f to civil asset forfeiture uh, as conducted by law enforcement in New Jersey and that's the other aspect we haven't touched on is that um, you know not only is it constitutionally questionable um, but it's done kind of in the uh, in the cloak of darkness there's no transparency uh, as to the a lot of the procedures and uh, how it's carried out or often what's done with the money um, and also uh, makes it a lot harder for claimants to even take have any any process or recourse to uh, get their the, their money or, or other property back and um, the New Jersey uh, bill was going to allow uh, or require rather mm -hmm. that um, at every instance of civil asset for forfeiture it would have to be on record what uh, information on the seizure of the property including, including a description of what was seized, the date of the seizure, uh, the market value of the seized property, the alleged criminal offense associated with the seizure which is <laughs> which is funny because you know in a lot of these cases they just kind of take take money or take property and there's no real criminal offense they just say oh you know uh, there's no good reason for you to have this mm -hmm. um uh, they would have to to disclose whether the person uh with a property interest in the seized property was uh being represented by counsel at the forfeiture proceeding you know as a this is so wacky and so like para you know i guess the word would be paralegal in a in an uh, adjective sense not in sure, the, yeah. the noun sense that uh you know i don't even think people are guaranteed any kind of counsel when they they uh are have this perpetrated on them um this is literally uh a um a sidestepping of due process um Lastly, they would have to note whether the property was returned to the owner, destroyed, sold after forfeiture, or retained. Um, and like I said, it passed unanimously, and then Governor Christie still vetoed it. Now that's interesting, because how often does any bill pass any legislature unanimously? Yeah. <laughs> now the thing that I that, that that leaves me wondering. Now I don't know enough about New York's. Uh, I'm sorry, New Jersey State specifically. Yeah. Uh, you know what their constitutional structure looks like, but I I find myself wondering whether or not, because uh, I mean, if this was the if this was the federal government where this had happened, it wouldn't matter if the president vetoed the thing. 
Yeah. Because that is a veto-proof majority. Yes. And I don't know if that's the case in New Jersey or not. Yeah. I and, mean, the state it, governments vary from state yeah, to exactly, state. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of what I'm getting at. And I'd be curious to find out whether or not uh, that veto-proofing provision is yeah. in place. Yeah. Because I'd, like I'd like to see something like this because it's the first step towards making civil asset forfeiture die. Yeah. Um, so then over in Arizona, uh, you know, it, it'd be, it's one thing when they go after drug dealers or terrorists and they kind of use this as some sort of fail safe. I guess that's the idea. Even yeah. if they can't get a conviction against the person, they can take away the power of their purse or take away, uh, other property that uh, would kind of uh, unempower them to to carry out what they were trying to do, but um, this is really chilling in Arizona. Their state senate uh, voted to seize assets of those who plan participate, uh, plan and participate in protests that turned violent. Okay. Uh, this was a. A state bill S one one four two, and it expands the state's racketeering laws now aimed at organized crime to also include rioting. Um, the uh, the beauty, or rather the lack of this proposal, is that uh, you know, as someone myself who has uh, attended and participated in many protests. How do you know if it's going to turn violent? And it's not like you can. Uh, it's not like you can isolate uh, those who uh, who were violent necessarily in, in such of a, a a mob setting like that. And and uh, you know it it it's just seems so nonsensical to me when you already have. Uh, perfectly good laws and perfectly good due process for uh, targeting the the individuals who act violently if they destroy property or or what have you during these and you can arrest them and prosecute them and it's worked okay. for hundreds of years. I, I think you're not being cynical enough. Okay. And and here's here's what the cynical view that I've come up with is for this thing is that if you have got protests going on and you want the protests to end, you go and you hire a few agent provocateurs to go in there and turn the protest violent. Sure. And then after the protest turns violent, you cash in. <laughs> so it's not enough that we we round up everybody, both the peaceful and the violent in that situation. We no, you take see, away now their you're, now bank you're accounts. Not, now you're not wasting the taxpayers' money on it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as Arizona State Senator John Kavanaugh, a Republican, said, quote, you now have a situation where you have full-time, almost professional agent provocateurs that attempt to create public disorder. But in this case, he's he he's construing he's accusing, agent yeah. provocateurs just in in terms of uh, the the people who 
uh, want to freely express themselves in the way that has been an American tradition. Well, that's since... been a that's been a, a line that we've heard a lot lately is uh, about the, how the the protesters must be paid. Yeah, it's the only explanation that the opposition can see for why they're protesting. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's the only uh, that's the only interpretation I can make out of the opposition to these protests, claiming that the protesters must be paid. Okay, uh, uh, being pissed off couldn't possibly be enough. Well, well, how could you possibly be pissed off at us? <laughs> you know, it's del- delusional if that's the case. Right. But it, I, I have to agree I, with you there. I don't know. That's I, that's I, been the line that has been being touted for even well below, well before the election. I think it's just a, just a, a manipulative way to d- discredit. Sure. Uh, uh, valid movements. I don't. I don't think those these politicians really believe that. They just want to find whatever they, they want to contrive whatever reason they can to uh, to get yeah. rid of this yeah. uh, this annoyance for them. Yeah. Um, and that and this is just yet another tool to do that. Yeah. Now, uh, there there was another big story uh, since our last episode. And for better or worse, uh, it what should have been the headline on this was civil asset for for sure. But uh, because of some uh, creative mudslinging that was involved, um, uh, the headline uh, was uh, was actually uh, Lufa face shit gibbon and. <laughs> I'll just throw that out, and I'll come back to the context in a moment. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, uh, Donald Trump and he uh, met with uh, a group of sheriffs from around the country, had them to the White House, I believe. Uh, and one of those sheriffs was uh, Harold Evenson from Rockwell County in Texas. And uh, while he was uh, meeting with uh, our new president, complained to Trump uh, about proposed legislation from a state senator back in Texas, Connie Burton is her name, uh, that would require uh, a traditional conviction in court before agencies could receive any civil forfeiture funds. So basically, what you would you and I would think would just be normal common sense and uh, rational uh righteous uh approach to law uh <laughs> it would be it the, has it to would be, be the codif- necessary correction yeah that would make it constitutional in my eyes yeah so, so um yeah i mean at least uh at least make it a punishment of an actual conviction yeah. to have your your assets forfeited yeah, uh, and not an independent uh, <laughs> parallel maneuver, um, but apparently uh, the sheriff uh, is not happy about that and um, said, "quote I I told him, meaning Trump, that the cartels uh, would build a monument to him in Mexico if he, meaning the." Uh, this legislator. The, the legislature yeah. could get that legislation passed. 
Trump responded, and this is the chilling part to me. Who is that state senator? You want me to give me his name? Will destroy his career. Uh, I don't even know what to say about that. But uh, <laughs> apparently, another state senator did know what to say about that. Uh, a oh, state necessary. senator from Pennsylvania. When he got wind of this, he responded with a tweet saying, I oppose civil asset forfeiture too. Why don't you try to destroy my career too, you fascist loofah face shit given? You know, it sounded like a, that, that sounded almost like a line from the Princess Bride. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought that was a pretty, pretty creative and unique uh, <laughs> epithet for somebody. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and uh, what, is, what is a gibbon? It, it, it's a, it's a uh, type of monkey. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we're talking about a pooflinger here. And what, what does it even mean to be loofah-faced? I have no idea on that yeah. front. I, I, I'd heard uh, another variant of it that had been making its way around the Internet before, um, before uh, Mr. Leach picked up on it, which was to call him a Cheeto-faced uh, shit gibbon, but, uh, I, but I'm not sure. But that was part of the problem. I think there was more media analysis to uh, discern what loofah-faced means and what a shit gibbon is than to actually focus on the issue of civil asset forfeiture and uh, what needs to be reformed about that. I, I probably know many people in my life that heard this story this week, thought it was hilarious, retweeted it, quoted it everywhere. But if I went back to them and said, like, you know, do you know what civil asset forfeiture is? They still have no idea. And that's kind of disconcerting. Yeah. And with that, I th think we kill a couple birds with one stone now because uh, that story alone uh, leads us into our next segment Patriots and Pariahs and if, you, if you've been watching this show we, we do a call out uh, every episode for uh, uh, one protector of privacy and one enemy of privacy uh, a Patriot and Pariah uh, respectively I think this time around we have to kind of make a, a an exception and give a dual award for our Patriots. Uh, I think this episode's Patriots have to uh, be shared by Daylin Leach, uh, the state senator from Pennsylvania, and Connie Barton from state, uh, who's a state senator from Texas, uh, for both uh, taking a stand against civil asset forfeiture and attempting to uh, uh, add oversight, transparency, and limitation to, to this practice. Um, obviously, obviously, then, obviously, then the, the appropriate pariah, given that this is the story, uh, the story currently of interest, has to be Sheriff Harold Evenson uh, for having caused this whole flap in the first place. So that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed Episode 5 of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. Meanwhile, head over to www.privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching The Watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.